We do appreciate everybody's presence again this evening. I'll invite you to turn to the book of Numbers again tonight. On Sunday evening, we've been taking some of our sermons from the book of Numbers over the last few weeks. I think the accounts that we are studying are familiar accounts. They're all collected for us in, in this book, the third book of the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the fourth book of, of the Old Testament. It covers uh, the period of Israel's history between the coming out of Egypt and going into the Promised Land, the wandering of Israel in the wilderness between those events. There's a lot of non-historical material in the book of Numbers. Some of it is historical. That is, it tells the story of events that take place in the history of Israel. But a lot of the book of Numbers is not that. There's an account of a census taken. There's the organization of the camp, the selection of Levites to serve, and their duties are laid out for us. There's a test for adultery. The Nazarite vow is described. The making of silver trumpets. And so there's a lot of material in there like that, but there are stories of events that take place during that wilderness wandering and so we've been taking our lessons from that, which raises this question, why, why do we have these stories? Why, why do we have these historical accounts? We're reading in, in the book of 2 Kings. Why, why do we have that historical material? Why, why doesn't God just say, do this, 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 and this? Don't do that, 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 and that. So why, why do we have that, that history? Well, God is speaking to us through the historical events, isn't He? And so, He speaks to us in the prophets in a certain way, speaks to us in Christ in a certain way, but God is acting in history, and so He's teaching us and speaking to us through these historical events. So He's telling us about Himself, what, what He's like, what His nature is like, what His character is like. He's teaching us how He reacts to people who obey Him and how He deals with people who disobey Him. And so He's speaking to us in history, and that, that really makes the story of the Bible unique. It's not simply a collection of do's and don'ts and commands and things like that, instructions. It's God speaking to us through historical events, and ultimately, of course, He speaks to us through the life of Christ, through that historical event. In addition to all of that, God is working out His promises to Abraham. And so, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, a pivotal passage in, in the Bible as God lays out His program for humanity. God is going to bring a descendant of Abraham into the world through whom all the nations will be blessed. And so, God is working toward that, working in Israel, the descendants of Abraham, preparing them for the coming Messiah. And so he's working with them through these events, through these historical events. He's working with them, teaching them who he is, what he's like, teaching them, this is what I want you to be, correcting them, and so forth. And so we need to hear God's voice, so to speak, in the history, in, in the events. And so that's true of the book of Numbers. It's true of the book of Ju uh, Judges. First and Second Kings, all of these historical books. And so, 
It's been said that the book of Numbers is a complex story of unfaithfulness, rebellion, apostasy, and frustration set against the background of God's faithfulness and for, forbearance. I thought that was a pretty, that's a pretty good description. Uh, a complex story of unfaithfulness. Just think about the stories we've talked about. Balaam's donkey, uh, Moses, sorry to say Noah, Moses striking the rock, and these stories of unfaithfulness and rebellion. We're going to talk about another one of those tonight. And so a complex story of unfaithfulness, rebellion, apostasy, frustration. You've seen Moses' frustration when he strikes the rock. God gets frustrated with Israel, doesn't he? And so frustration is a part of the story. But God is also faithful. He doesn't just write off Israel and condemn them and destroy them, though he wants to at times. He remains faithful to them and loyal to them, and he continues to work with them, bringing them to the place, the right time, he's going to bring his Messiah into the world. Well, we can see Israel's lack of faith at times. We can see God's faithfulness at times in, in these stories, and maybe that's uh, some of the primary lessons that we find in the book of Numbers. Tonight we will go to chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16. What I'm going to do tonight is just, I'm not going to, we're going to the, the episode that we're going to consider takes up the whole chapter, all 50 verses, so we're not going to take the time to read all of that. But I'm going to try to go over the story, relate the story, and maybe you can open your Bible and kind of scan through, kind of scan through as as we think about it. And I might read a selected verse here or there. So verse 1 says, Now Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of uh, Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took action. They rose up before Moses, together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation chosen in the assembly, men of renown, they assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You've gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And so this is what I've described, what's commonly described as Korah's rebellion. And so Korah, along with some, we might call them co-conspirators, it's Korah, Dathan, Abiram, a man named On, and they're joined by 250 other Israelites. And they go to Moses and they say, they challenge him. They call into question his leadership. You've gone too far. We're all holy. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? You know, what makes you so powerful? You know, where do you get the right to do what you're doing? So they. They challenge his authority. They challenge his leadership. Now, just maybe talk a little bit about Korah and his background. He is uh, a descendant of Kohath. He's a Kohathite. And you might remember from previous study that the Kohathites were Levites, one of the clans in the tribe of Levi. And they had special duties in the care of the tabernacle. You remember those three clans of the Levites, and they have special duties. The Kohathites had the responsibility of carrying on poles the furnishings of the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant included. And so it's not like Korah was, 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 was not in a special place in Israel. He did have a special place. He had special work. 
But he wasn't satisfied with that divinely appointed place. He wanted more. And so he challenges, along with his co-conspirators, he challenges uh, Moses' authority and Moses' leadership. If you go down to verse 10, Moses responds at the end of that verse by saying, Are you seeking the priesthood also? And so that might give us some insight into what Korah's ambition was. Uh, do you want the, you've got this special place, you're a Levite, now you're not satisfied with that. Do you also want the priesthood? And so again, he's, he's not satisfied with the role that God has given him. He wants more. He challenges Moses. In the next section, verses 4 through 19, we find Moses' response to this challenge. It says, God will demonstrate who his approved leader is through the burning of incense. And so we're not told exactly how this would work at this point, but they were to take their censer, put fire on it, put incense on it. And in some way, God would favor one person, his chosen appointed leader, and show his disfavor to others, to those who don't have the right to lead as, as, as God's appointed. Now that made me think of uh, Genesis chapter 4 and the sacrifice of Cain and Abel, where God uh, had respect for Abel's offering but not Cain's. And so God in some way is going to show and demonstrate through this offering of incense who his approved leader was. And you might also remember Leviticus 10, in the case of Nadab and Abihu, who offered strange fire before the Lord. And so there's maybe those kind of are in the background here a little bit. But in some way, God is going to show His, his appointment, his, his will. Moses says that they had gone too far. And he, he uses exactly the same words that they had used in their accusation against him. You, you've gone too far. You've gone far enough. And Moses uses those same words against them. You've gone too far uh, in your accusation, your dissatisfaction with God's leadership. Moses summons them to a meeting, verses 12 through 14, and they refuse to. To, to come. Verse 12, Moses sent a summons to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, but they said, we will not come up. You know, you've been a terrible leader. You haven't brought us into the promised land. And so we are not going to cooperate. We're not going to come up. And they accused Mo Moses of failing to lead them effectively. What they fail to acknowledge there is their own role in their failure to enter the promised land. You remember when uh, the 12 spies brought back the bad report? They had confidence in the 10 spies and not the two, and that's why they were not able to enter. It wasn't Moses' leadership that was lacking. It was their own lack of faith that uh, prevented them from entering the promised land. But they don't recognize that. They don't recognize their own shortcoming. And so Moses challenges the rebels to gather against him and Aaron, and, and they do. See that in verse 16, Moses said to Korah, you and all your company be present before the Lord tomorrow, both you and they along with Aaron, and, and they do. They, they come up and they meet him at the tent of meeting. But you notice in verse 15 that that section begins with the words, then Moses became very angry. <laughs> Can you blame him? <laughs> I, I, I can't blame him. Now, maybe he shouldn't have become angry, but we can understand why he did. And so, talk about how numbers uh, re reflects the frustration involved in dealing with rebellious and contentious 
uh, argumentative, disobedient people, and we see it on this occasion as well. Moses becomes angry and calls them up, and, and they do. They come. You can see that verses 15 through 19. And then beginning in verse 20, we see the Lord's response. This goes all the way through verse 40. God's first impulse was to destroy the entire congregation. But Moses appeals to him, as he had done before, and God decides to take a, a different course. And he ends up saying, now, if the Lord does something new, if something occurs that has never occurred before, if the earth opens up and swallows the rebels, that's Korah, Dathan, Nabiram, the 250 men, at least their co-conspirators, their colleagues and all of this, if the ground opens up and swallows them, well then the people will know that Moses is God's approved leader. And about the time that he said that, in fact, the earth does open up and swallow them. Verse 31, as he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them, that's Korah and Dathan and Abiram and others, the ground that was under them split open, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. So here's Korah, all these men that were with him. The earth opens up, whoosh, they go down. The earth closes over, they go down alive to Sheol. The, the realm of the dead uh, is uh, maybe one way to describe what Sheol is. Now later on in chapter 26 and verse 11, we find that Korah's sons do not, do not die in this episode. But on this occasion, Korah, the people that are with him, uh, in co the conspiracy with him, and, and others, they're swallowed up. Now the 250 are burned with fire, verse 35. Fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who are offering the incense. Well, you think maybe that's the end of it. They take their censers, these uh, implements uh, that they put fire in and put incense on. They take those censers and they beat them and make them a covering for the, the ark, or rather the altar. Take that to be the altar of incense. And you think maybe that's the end of it, but, but it's not. Verse 41 says, On the next day all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, You're the ones that have caused the death of the Lord's people. More grumbling, more complaining. You're to blame. You're at fault. They, 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 these people, you, you've, you're the, the reason that they, that they lost their lives. And so another round of complaining as the people blame Moses for the death of Korah and his colleagues. And so God strikes the people with a plague. And uh, it, it's a rather uh, effective plague. It goes through the Israelites very quickly. Moses calls out to Aaron in verse 46, Take your censer, put in it the fire from the altar and incense on it. Bring it quickly to the congregation. Make atonement for them, for the wrath has gone forth from the Lord. The plague has begun. Aaron took it as Moses had spoken and ran into the midst of the assembly. Do this quickly. Moses, Aaron does it quickly. He takes it. He runs into the assembly. And yet... Uh, 14,700 people die in the plague. And so it's a, 
rather violent plague. So, in this episode, Korah dies, Dathan, Abiram, and On die. The 250 men die. The 14,700 men die because they would not accept God's appointed spokesman and ambitiously sought for themselves what God did not intend for them to have. Let's draw out a few, just draw out a few lessons from the episode. I'm just going to, I'm just going to, there's lots of them, but I just want to note three. The, the first one's, <laughs> it's, it's a repeated lesson, isn't it? I mean, it happens over and over and over again. Though they had no justifiable cause, the people complained. Korah complains. He had no, no reason to complain. He was already as part of the Kohathites, so he was already set aside to do special work in connection with the tabernacle. But he complained about the leadership of Moses, not, not content with the place where God had put him. And so, Korah and his comrades complained about the leadership of Moses and Aaron. In verse 41, others complain when Korah and his fellow conspirators are swallowed up. They, they complain. In fact, Israel has a long history of complaining, don't they? If you go back to Exodus 15, 16, 17, Numbers 14, 16, and 17, find over and over a number of instances in which Israel complains. I'll just look at a couple of those quickly. Go back to the very first one in Exodus chapter 15, verse 24. Now, Israel comes through the Red Sea in chapter 14. <laughs> they're, they're, they're singing this song at the beginning of chapter 15 about the great deliverance that God has provided for them. But before the chapter is over, they're grumbling at Moses saying, What shall we drink? Wow, that's, that's, uh, that gets your attention, I suppose, doesn't it? They've just come through the Red Sea. <laughs> and yet now they're complaining because, well, we don't have water to drink. They, they complain against Moses and Aaron that they don't have any food. Exodus 16, so God provides them manna. They complain against Moses and Aaron at the spies' report and want to go back to Egypt in Numbers chapter 14. In Numbers, or Exodus 15, they complain that they don't have drinkable water. In Exodus 17, again, they complain that they don't have water, even though God has supplied them with water previously. In Numbers 16, we find them right here complaining against Aaron about their leadership, his leadership, Moses' leadership. Aaron is specified in verse 11. In Numbers 11, verse 1, they complain about their adversity, their difficult circumstances. I want you to notice... Deuteronomy chapter 29. Look at Deuteronomy 29, verses are going to begin in uh, verse 4. Let me get to in the right chapter. Chapter 29, verse 4. Moses, here's a, here we are at the end of their wandering period, and Moses says, Yet to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. I've led you forty years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you. Your sandal has not worn out on your foot. You've not eaten bread. You know, you don't have to go out and earn your own bread. God gives that to you. You've not drunk wine or strong drink in order that you know that I'm the Lord your God. So God is providing your food for you. When you reach this place, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out to meet us for battle. We defeated them. 
We took their land, gave it as an inheritance to Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Here we are at the end. God's been providing you with food. And we know He's provided them with manna, with quail, with water. Your clothes haven't worn out. Your shoes haven't worn out. God has been providing you for you all along, all through this period. And yet, you're complaining. You have no reason to complain. And yet, you complain over and over and over again. God had promised that He would bring them into the land. And yet, they have no faith, no confidence that God's going to do that. And so, they complain about their circumstances. They seem to forget their previous circumstances when they were enslaved in Egypt. They seem to have the idea that they were much better off then. If you go back to Exodus chapter 3, for example, God hears their cry. He sees their adversity. He sees that they're being oppressed. He sees the situation they're in. And yet, you read other passages like Exodus chapter 16, and they're saying, oh, we're such hard circumstances here in the wilderness. Oh, I wish we could go back to Egypt. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. You brought us into the wilderness to kill us, the whole assembly with hunger. they, they They forget how oppressed they were in Egypt. They think it was much better. And they complain about their situation, even though the Lord's providing for them. And so Moses becomes frustrated. He becomes frustrated at Meribah. We saw that's when he strikes the rock. He lashes out at them. He becomes frustrated here in Numbers chapter 16. We noted that. He became very angry in, in verse 15 there. And so, and God becomes frustrated with them as well. We're going to talk about this a little bit more in a minute. But on more than one occasion, God says, what I'm going to do, I'm just going to wipe them out. And Moses, I'll start over with you. And so they complained and complained and complained. What we're told here in Numbers chapter 16 and verse 11 is that really all complaining is against God. He's brought you near Korah and all your brothers of Levi with you. Are you seeking the priesthood uh, 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 also? Therefore you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. But as for Aaron, who is that that you grumble against him? So you're... God has appointed Aaron and Moses, and your complaining really is against God. It's not not ultimately against Moses. It's not ultimately against Aaron. It's ultimately against God Himself. You know, we, we, we read these stories. This is not a new point. We've made this point before. You've studied it before. And we kind of criticize them for their complaining, and yet it raises this question. How about us? Are we complaining people? You know, they, they didn't have any justifiable cause for their complaint. How about us? Are we a complaining people? Well, sometimes we are. <laughs> sometimes we are. We don't appreciate the blessings that we have. Which of us goes without what they need? You know, there's a distinction between what we need and what we want. <laughs> Which of us goes without what we need? We've talked about it tonight. Roger talked about the shoes that he had. I've got multiple pair of shoes. Most of us do have. And yet we complain. We don't appreciate what we need. We don't, don't appreciate the abundance that God has blessed us with. If we're inconvenienced, we complain. We have to wait in the line at the grocery store. 
I can't believe there's three people in front of me. Why don't they open some other lines? You know? <laughs> and we have a grocery store full of food. And we complain that we have to wait in line. If we're inconvenienced, we complain. And if things are not just so in the church, they're not just, just so, just the way I want them, just the way I like them. We, we, we're going to complain about that. Are we complaining people? Yeah, some, sometimes we are. So we need to just step back, think about, think about that, think about the position that Israel was in, God's frustration with them when they complained. And maybe just step back a little bit and say, okay, look, I'm, I need to stop my complaining. <laughs> I need to appreciate what I've got. I need to be thankful for what God has blessed me with. And so, yeah, sometimes we can be complaining people. I say we. I don't say y'all. I say we. Because I'm that way as well. All right. God was moved by the appeal of Moses. And we noted this a few minutes ago, that on multiple occasions, God says to Moses, I, I'm just going to destroy the congregation of the people, and I, I'm just going to start over with you. He does that here in chapter 16 in verse 20. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. And so Moses, you kind of get, get back. I'm going to consume the congregation. But they fell on their faces, that's Moses and Aaron, and said, O God, God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, will you be angry with the entire congregation? And so the Lord decides to take a different approach. Now that's not the first time that's happened. It happened back in Exodus chapter 32 with an incident of the golden calf that Aaron had made. And so God said, I'm going to destroy these people, Moses, and I'll, I'll, I'll make a great nation out of your descendants. And Moses appeals to him on that occasion. And again, the Lord decides to take a, a different approach. In fact, in the 106th Psalm, Psalm 106, let me get over there, and uh, verse 23 it says, Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying him, God would have destroyed them in that golden calf incident, Exodus chapter 32. And it happens again with the twelve spies in Numbers chapter 14, verses 11 and following. But each time Moses appeals to the Lord, and he really appeals to the Lord on the basis of what that action might do to his name, his reputation among the nations. He says things like, Moses says things like, well, Lord, if you do that, if you wipe them out, your enemies are going to say it's because you were not able to bring them into the promised land. And so, and so Moses' appeal has an effect on God, and God decides to take a different, a different approach. Our prayers matter to God. Uh, you know, all through the Bible, we are encouraged to pray. Uh, all through the Bible. And so, why all that encouragement, why all these appeals to pray, if our prayers don't mean anything to God? Our prayers matter to God. He hears our prayers, and our prayers may influence God to take a different approach. Now, there are some conditions for effective prayer, and we want to note those. In first, in, first of all, Matthew chapter 7, we're told to ask. And so we need to ask. <laughs> That's the first condition. You have to pray. You have to ask. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And so James says, you have not because you ask not. 
First condition of prayer, you have to pray. You know, you have to ask. A second condition is we ask according to His will. And so that's 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14. This is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. The good example of that, of course, is Christ. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so we ask according to His will. In James chapter 4 and verse 3, we're instructed not to ask selfishly. So James says that you ask so that you might spend it on your, on your pleasures. And so you ask and do not receive. Because you're asking selfishly, just so you might spend it on your pleasures. And so notice the difference between that and what Moses did. What Moses did was appeal to God on the basis of God's name. Or God, what people would say about God, not, not Moses' selfish interests. We ask in His name is a fourth condition of effective prayer. If you ask the Father anything in my name, He will give it to you. John 16, verse 23, as Jesus teaches the apostles in the upper room. Ephesians 5, verse 20, Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, even to the Father. We're to ask without doubting. James 1, in verse 5, If anyone lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously, without reproach, It'll be given to him, but he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. And then we're to pray fervently as well. James chapter 5 and verse 16. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So God opens himself up to our prayers that's what I believe the Bible teaches. He hears our prayers. Our prayers matter to Him. Our prayers have an effect on Him. We're encouraged to pray many passages. Luke 18, Jesus tells the story of a judge who really doesn't have very much regard for, for men, but a widow continually, uh, persistently appeals to Him, and He responds. And so it says that Jesus taught us this to the end, that we ought always to pray and not to faint. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing, and other passages as well. Jesus taught His disciples to pray. When you pray, pray in this way, our Father who is in heaven. If our prayers don't matter, why all these exhortations to pray? Again, the entire tenor of the Bible suggests that our prayers matter to God. And so, we're encouraged to pray, so pray. And then the third point is simply this, that God was displeased when Korah rejected his appointed spokesman. In this case, it was Moses, Moses and Aaron. But in our case, God's appointed spokesman is Christ. God makes that clear, doesn't He? The Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17. Uh, remember Peter says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let's build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. About that time, voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You listen to Him. Hear ye Him. He's my approved spokesman. Christ Himself makes this uh, claim as well. I think Matthew chapter 11 illustrates that, verse 27. Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And so I have a special relationship with my Father, and I'm going to reveal 
my Father to you. And so Jesus it, makes that claim to be God's spokesman today. And so those who reject Christ reject the Father who sent him. Today, not only is Christ our, uh, our God's appointed leader, but Christ speaks to us through his apostles. And so we would include the apostles in God's appointed spokesman today as well. John chapter 16 and verse 15. Jesus is promising the Spirit is going to come to the apostles. And he says in verse 15, All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said, He takes of mine and will disclose it to you. All right, and so this Holy Spirit is coming. The Spirit is going to take from mine and disclose it to you. And then you go out and teach. And so the apostles are the divinely appointed representation, uh, representatives of Christ. They're in a, in a way an extension of Christ, aren't they? And so 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 37, Paul says, I want you to know that what I'm saying to you is the commandment of the Lord. This is the Lord's commandment. And so Paul says, I, I am the representative of the Lord in this matter, and what I'm saying to you is what the Lord says. And then look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. And so what we're teaching you is the word of God. He commends them for accepting it as such. And so just as God was displeased when Korah and his colleagues rejected God's appointed leader in this episode, Numbers 16, so God it would be displeased if we reject His appointed spokesman today, Christ and His apostles. It's no wonder then that in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, Paul says that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That is the teaching of the apostles and prophets. The apostles and prophets are speaking the Word of God. And then Acts chapter 2, verse 42, those early disciples continued steadfastly in whose doctrine? The apostles' doctrine. Why the apostles' doctrine? Because the Holy Spirit has been sent to them, and they are guiding the people into all truth as representatives of Christ. And so we want to make sure that we do not in any way call into question or reject God's appointed spokesman. That's a mistake. Korah and his colleagues learned it the hard way. God is, God's communicating to us through that event. He's trying to teach us something. I expect you to respect my appointed spokesman. And for us, that would be Christ and his apostles. And so another episode from the book of Numbers, one that we may be familiar with, but, but it's a very powerful uh, lesson for us. It's a very powerful event in that God is speaking to us, speaking through the event. He wants us to know something about Himself, how He deals with those who obey and disobey. And so let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for today, the Lord's Day, and the opportunity we've had to, to, to gather together and worship today. We're thankful for the lessons we learned from Your Word. We pray, Father, that We'll be attentive as we study these things, and we'll be open, that we'll learn the lessons that you would have us to learn. 
and that we'll apply them to our lives in the way that you would have us apply them to our lives. Father, it's our desire to be drawn closer and closer to you, to become more and more the kind of people that you would have us to be. And we want to learn, Father, from uh, the uh, episodes that we read about in your word. We can see the mistakes of others and we can learn from them and not make the same mistakes. And we can see what others did well and we can follow in their path. Help us, Father, to learn from this particular episode, Korah and his rebellion. Help us not to be a complaining people, Father. Help us to appreciate uh, the gifts that you've given to us, the abundance that you've given to us. Help us to be content. Help us, Father, to, uh, uh, to pray to you, uh, to continue to appeal to you. We're so thankful that you will hear our prayers and that our, our prayers matter to you. And Father, help us take advantage of that great blessing, the blessing of prayer, more and more often, more and more fervently. And Father, we pray we will always uh, listen to uh, those that you've appointed uh, to deliver your truth, to your Son, Jesus Christ especially, to those who represent him, those apostles who, who communicate his message as well. And may we continually always abide in the doctrine that they teach. We ask these things, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen.